Welcome to the Arate Podcast, the podcast created to help senior executives and the organizations they lead live up to their full potential. Join us for cutting-edge interviews with leading senior executive and board members across all industry sectors and for practical tips to accelerate your executive career. And now, here's your host, Richard Triggs. Welcome to the Arate Podcast. My name is Richard Triggs, and today's guest is Rob Seljak, CEO of TUH Health Fund. It's great to have you along today, and I'm imagining that by the time you're listening to this, it's early 2017, so I hope you've had a fantastic break over the Christmas New Year period, and you've got some exciting goals to look forward to achieving in this year of 2017. I'm looking forward to bringing this conversation with Rob to you. Uh, He's a Canadian by background who's been living in Australia for 25 years. Uh, Really interesting guy with a great story. But before I introduce Rob to you, let me tell you a little bit about myself in more detail for those people who are new to the Arate podcast. My name is Richard Triggs and I'm the managing partner of Arate Executive. And we recruit CEOs, senior leaders and non-executive directors for our clients throughout Australia. So if we can assist you with any recruitment requirements within your own organisation, please reach out to me. I'd love to have a chat to you about that. Let me now introduce to you Rob Seljak. Rob Seljak was born in Canada, and after completing qualifications in the law, he travelled through third world countries for many years before returning to Canada and then moving to Australia about 25 years ago. He completed a Master's in Business at the Queensland University of Technology and worked in the areas of industrial relations and work cover before in May 2005 taking on his current role as the CEO of the Queensland Teachers Union Health Fund, now rebranded as TUH. Rob lives in Brisbane, Australia. Sit back and enjoy this conversation with Rob Seljak. Well, Rob, uh, welcome to the Aratope Podcast. It's great to have you along the week before Christmas. Uh, so I hope that you've got an exciting break planned coming up soon. Yeah, well, I'm planning to take a beach holiday. So a beach holiday. Looking forward to it. Fantastic. That. Well, look, it's uh, it's good for you to take the time to have this conversation prior to going to the beach. So uh, welcome. And perhaps just to begin with, if you'd like to uh, let us know a bit about your current range of professional responsibilities. Right. Well, my principal responsibility is as Chief Executive Officer of TUH, uh-huh. which is a private health insurer based here in Brisbane. Mm-hmm. And mainly... Uh, our main market is the education sector. Right. So we were established over 40 years ago by the education unions. Mm-hmm. And um, we um, have since expanded our eligibility. So mm-hmm. um, we're a, a broader health fund. We're actually open to all union members. Okay. Um, and uh, we find that working in those niches is a, um, a good way to grow. We've been one of the fastest growing health funds over the last two years in Australia. Mm-hmm. When the rest of the market um, is growing at one two percent, we're more like seven eight percent. Right. Okay. So it's uh, yeah, it's been a, an interesting an interesting journey. 
As well as TUH, I uh, sit on the board of four industry-related organizations, Mm -hmm. Uh, one an IT company, one a hospital negotiating group, and two industry associations. Mm -hmm. Um, I also chair uh, the board of Hillbrook Anglican School in Mitchelton here in Brisbane. And um, is that because your your children go there? They did, right? Okay. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's just just a school that has strong values that okay. I share, and yeah. um, so it's um, it's it's good good working with them mm-hmm. to try and promote that to others mm-hmm. and build on it. And um, I'm also a director on a community board out at Sanford where I live. Okay. So it's a type of a sustainability startup, right? Called Sanford Commons. Okay. It's also quite. Interesting. So, uh, varied yet many responsibilities. You're a busy man. I am, but I enjoy the diversity. Okay. It's quite a quite diverse um, uh, range of responsibilities, and mm-hmm. um, I guess I'm used to juggling, you know, kind of busy, um, <clears throat> busy times, having been in senior executive roles for over 20 years. Yeah. It's just part of the territory. Okay. And uh, you refer as TUH rather than Teachers Union Health. So that was a bit of a rebrand when you opened up to other unions? That's exactly right. Right, I think there was a bit of confusion out there that, uh, you know, with the the name Teachers, uh, we market that. It's not open to others. So a couple of years ago, we started using TUH in our marketing materials just to, um, you know, these days there's a lot of companies that are just based on initials. Yep. Um, They all used to mean something originally, but... You know, and in health insurance, it's no, it's, mm-hmm. it's no different. Mm-hmm. I think one of the prime examples of that is KFC having previously been Kentucky Fried Chicken, <laughs> but I, I think their motivation was a little bit different. They wanted to get away from the whole uh, negative uh, uh, perception of fried food, I suppose. Whereas, and so when you mentioned that you're having significantly more growth, is that due to market conditions or is that due to the fact that you've now opened up to a broader you know, customer base, which is attracting a higher volume of uh, people who are interested? Yeah, it's a bit of both, actually. Okay. Um, it's also the fact that private health insurance is becoming uh, more of a challenge yeah. in terms of affordability. Mm-hmm. And so people are looking around for better value. Mm-hmm. And as a small not-for-profit fund, um, we focus completely on the member. We have mm-hmm. no shareholders or foreign owners. So a lot of our growth are coming from members of the large funds, mainly Medibank, mm-hmm. but also Bupa, mm-hmm. who are switching. Right. And they're um, very ably assisted by the uh, em- um, emergence of aggregators okay. in the Australian market. Yeah. Principally, I select, mm-hmm. but there are a couple of others on the scene as well. Mm-hmm. So people are um, looking at their policies, want to make sure they get the best value. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> it's been... Um, you know, alleged that Medibank is at the same time um, changing its benefits on right. some of its products, yep. causing people to realize they're no longer covered for X, yep. and they find a fund that does cover mm-hmm. X. Mm-hmm. So we end up with um, a lot of people from um, other funds, but we have quite healthy growth in terms of new members as well. Right, but uh, were somebody to approach who's not a member of a union, you wouldn't take their business, or you would? Well, the, the rules are a little broader than that as okay, well. Right. So um, if you're a family member uh-huh. of a union member or you're an ex-union member, okay. under the legislation, right. all those categories are also covered. Right. So we find that we actually represent quite a large cross-section I bet. of the population. 
Having said that, we tend to market very specifically. Mm -hmm. So we usually work with a union, mm -hmm. a particular union, um, and we'll, we'll market in that, in that niche. Okay. So, for, exam for example, um, we've had a lot of growth in the last couple of years from the nurses' union. Right. And so we work very closely with the Queensland Nurses' Union. Okay. We're principally still a Queensland fund, mm -hmm. although people from other states can join. We principally still market mainly in Queensland. Right. And we've got strong links here. Okay. And you mentioned uh, legislation. So what legislation controls this space? Uh, the Private Health Insurance Act. Okay. 2007. Right. So it's, uh, it's a highly regulated mm -hmm. insurance environment. Um, I guess there are others like work cover and yeah. things like that that are also regulated. Yeah. But certainly private health insurance, to the extent that the minister actually has to approve the premium increases each right. year. And that's always a, a bit of a torturous right. process. And yet the legislation stipulates where you are able to uh, draw your clients or your, your customers from. No, well, it allows you to. Right. So, most, so out of the 34 health funds in Australia, yeah. only about a dozen still choose to be niche players. Right. All the rest are open. Right. And Anybody so what's the advantage to being a niche player? Well, I think one of the advantages is that you build a rapport with your okay, members, yep. you build a relationship, and um, you get to learn what they need, what, okay. what um, is of value to them, mm -hmm. and you build on that. Okay. So, for example, in the industry, typically um, a large open health fund mm -hmm. uh, um, will have an attrition rate of between 10 and 15%, mm -hmm. whereas typically a, a fund like ours will be between 4 and 6%. Right. So a lot. So not only do we have more people joining us, but they also stay with us. Yeah, they're, but they're you're not, you don't get advantageous pricing that you can pass on because you're a niche union fund. No. Right. Okay. So the, the, the better uh, retention is due to the fact that they feel just your organisation understands them better because of that union affiliation. Uh, partly that and, and also the services we offer. Right. So, for example, I guess the, the fund was originally started for teachers. So mm -hmm. we were one of the first health funds in Australia to offer a free counselling service. Okay. Because stress was sure. identified as being something that um, teachers put up with yeah. a lot. Yeah. Um, we also opened up our uh, health hub in Fortitude Valley here in Brisbane. Mm -hmm. um, and about... 35% uh, of our members visit that um, facility every year to, to um, experience dental, optical, mm -hmm. physio, massage type services. Okay. And it's all done in one spot. Right. So it feels a little bit like, especially during school holidays, a bit of a social club. Yeah. People know each other. You know, the kids are there and they're, they're you, know, pl you know, playing around. And um, even people from northern Queensland, they'll mm -hmm. come down for their holidays, maybe visiting relatives at Christmas, mm -hmm. and at the same time, they'll be visiting our center, and, right. they'll, and they'll get the whole suite of <laughs> services done at once. Come in for a <laughs> recent oil change. That's right. <laughs> Very good. Well, let's talk a little bit more about that uh, later in the conversation, and uh, now go back to uh, where it all began for you. Uh, no doubt people listening in can hear you've got a, an accent, which is not typical for an Australian, so uh, perhaps tell us about where you were born and your early life, mum and dad, etc. Right. Okay, I was uh, born in Toronto, Canada, mm -hmm. and um, <clears throat> I grew up in the kind of inner city 
my parents were immigrants from mm-hmm. Eastern Europe, from okay. Slovenia. They came over um, during World War II. Right. So um, my dad was actually a boat person. Uh, right. He arrived by uh, boat, and the boats were coming from Italian refugee camps. Mm-hmm. Um, they were principally going to either um, Canada, the U.S., or Argentina. Right. Those were the countries that would accept people. Okay. Um, Because at that time, it was very difficult because Yugoslavia was created as a result of the war. Mm -hmm. And there were a lot of people that felt they couldn't go back there Mm -hmm. uh, for one reason or another. And why did your parents choose Canada versus the other options? Well, my mother's father came over to work in the mines, the gold mine in in Timmins, which is in northern Ontario. And uh, my dad just got in a queue. And right. So when you got to the front, you went on the boat that would take you. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Oh, great. And so, uh, and they moved straight away uh, to the city that you were born in. Um, well, Dad had to do two years um, kind of uh, regional service. Mm-hmm. So he worked on a farm in um, Alberta, which is in Western Canada. That's where I was born. Ah, that's in right. Edmonton. Okay, so just south of Edmonton, yeah, near Red Deer, actually. Right. Um, he he did that for two years, then moved back to Toronto. A lot of the immigrants did move to either Toronto or Montreal, okay, because um, yeah, that's where they mm-hmm. could get work. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, he was they were very hardworking, instilled a very uh, sense of the importance of education mm-hmm. for us. I had four brothers and sisters, okay, and um, yeah, and and and, and Dad was a very uh, successful businessman. He got into as a um, they called them DPs back then, deported right. persons. Okay. And they had University of Toronto mm-hmm. had some spaces reserved for people with disadvantage, including okay. yep. displaced persons. So he got in, his English wasn't very good, but he got into engineering. Uh-huh. And he became an electrical engineer. Right. Worked for Philips, General Electric, okay. those kind of companies. Sure. Yeah, and then ended up uh, teaching. Right. Engineering at a kind of like a TAFE type community college. Right. Okay. Called, yeah. And what about mum? Uh, yeah, mum was, uh, well, she kind of uh, managed uh, a very small property empire. So uh-huh. when the, the way that my parents um, made, made, made ends meet is by buying um, fairly large houses yeah. and turning them into basically boarding houses right. and doing a lot of, you know, renting and um, all of that. And, and that was always a challenge um, in those days because, you know, people were unrelated, mm. living like share houses in those in those days, it wasn't as common mm-hmm. for people to rent big apartments or houses on their own because of the economic situation. Yeah. Um, so yeah, they just um, kind of um, built up their um, okay. business that way. Right. And what number were you out of five? Uh, so I'm the uh, second oldest. Okay. Yeah. Um, I have an older sister who's my only uh, sister. Mm-hmm. So she kind of runs the family. Right. <laughs> Um, and, and she actually became a teacher. She's recently retired, but um, she, uh, yeah, we're, we're quite a close family. Mm-hmm. We, you know, go back, you know, I've been in Australia 25 years, mm-hmm. um, and I go back at least once a year, sometimes twice a year. Okay. So, um, yeah, we're still a close family. Right. Oh, good. Yeah. But are all of your siblings still live in Canada? Yeah, they do. Right. They do. Okay. So, I, when I, I went to... Um, I did a couple of university st- uh, degrees. Mm-hmm. I did a, um, an arts degree at the University of Toronto and then a law degree at Queen's University, mm-hmm. which is in Kingston, a town halfway between Toronto and Montreal. Okay. 
and <clears throat> I did a, the bar admission course following that, my articles. I got called to the bar in, in, um, in Ontario, but I wasn't really sure I wanted to start working. Mm -hmm. I thought, once, once you start, right. very hard to pull out. So, and what sort of age were you then? So I'd be in my early 20s. Okay, yeah. And so I decided that, um, in fact, I um, saw um, an ad for an NGO right. that did volunteer work all over the world. Right. So I signed up for that uh -huh. and I got uh, posted to Nigeria. Okay. Doing so, what sort of things? So I was, um, I, it was actually at a, um, at a school and mm -hmm. I was, it, it was a um, carpentry school. Mm -hmm. So it was run by the Catholic Church. Yeah. And they basically built furniture for missions, churches, right. schools, etc. Okay. So was, and they, they main, all their apprentices were either orphans or they had disabilities. Mm -hmm. And, um, they what they needed was somebody to teach them basic English and maths mm -hmm. so they could pass their trade tests. Right. So I was working in the in basically in a classroom setting mm -hmm. with these young guys, and um, and they had all all these nicknames for all the tools. Right. They right. called a, a hammer a slammer. But, you know, on a trade test, you couldn't say <laughs> you know pick up a slammer. Right. So there were there was you know just. They could all speak English, but mm -hmm. their English, their vocabulary needed work, their mm -hmm. grammar, mm -hmm. and, and the maths as well. So, but it was a very enriching experience. I did it only for about half a year. That right. was the limit of the program. Okay. Had you grown up in the church? I had, actually. I was um, uh, Catholic, uh -huh. and my parents were very devout Catholics. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, there was a bit of a connection there. As right. Well. Okay. Yeah. So uh, six months in Nigeria. Yes. And what happened from there? Well, I decided... Um, I, uh, I actually applied to do a master's of law at Monash University in Australia. I had this thing that I wanted to go to Australia. What was the fascination with Australia? Well, I think it was the climate more okay. than anything else, yeah. but also it um, had a good reputation in, in some of the schools. Right. And they were well known um, mm -hmm. by Canadians. Okay. Because um, we had quite a few Australians actually doing the opposite, right. doing their master's in um, at Queen's where I was in law mm -hmm. and they talked about some of the universities. Mm -hmm. um, so I applied, but you know, I had left and hadn't thought much about it. And um, <clears throat> I decided rather than go back, I'd, I'd keep traveling. Mm -hmm. So I went to East Africa and I did a trip around, you know, Kenya, Tanzania, Uganda, Rwanda, Burundi, right. all these great sounding places for about six months. Okay. On your own? On my own. Right. Yeah, the whole time. Um, really interesting experience. Um, and full of adventure. Climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. Mm -hmm. Hitched a ride on a Land Rover with a, with a bunch of Aussies. Got all our stuff stolen from right. the car. Um, and yeah... But such great people over there. They're so so friendly, welcoming, and sometimes with really nothing mm -hmm. to show for it, but always lovely hospitality. Anyway, I got back to Kenya, and I had a letter. In those days, it was all uh, snail mail. Yeah. Went to the um, post restaurant, and I got a letter informing me that I was accepted at Monash University mm -hmm. for this master's program. Mm -hmm. So I went to the Australian embassy to pick up my student visa because I was I reckoned I was halfway there mm -hmm. I just had to keep going a bit further yeah and um, they said that I had to go back to Canada to get okay. my student visa and I just thought well I don't want to do that right so anyway instead I went to India 
So, as you do. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, so I went to India and I decided to go trekking in Nepal because that's right. what people were talking about. And um, on the trek, mm. um, it wasn't an organized trek at all, but mm-hmm. it was a 21 day trek okay. around the Annapurna circuit, yes, which is very famous. Yes. Um, anyway, halfway through the trek, I met an Aussie girl. Right. Right. And uh, we ended up traveling in India for three months together. Mm-hmm. She had to go back to Australia to, um, she was a nurse. She was doing a midwifery course. Mm-hmm. I kept traveling and I ended up in Australia. I was by that time overseas for two years. Right. It's not very common in Canada, I know, for Australians, young Other Australians. Other than the six months you'd worked for the NGO, the NGO, had you worked at all? No. That's right. So you obviously had built a bit of a war chest of funds to see you through two years. Yeah, but it was very cheap because right. I only visited third world countries. Right. With the exception of Australia. Sure. Um, but it was, so it was very cheap. Okay. Like when I did my trek in Nepal, it was 21 days and... Food and lodging was a total of $28. Wow. So it was very cheap to travel. And, of course, I was a backpacker. Yeah. So I couldn't do it now. Probably uh, a week or a month would cost me that whole trip. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so anyway, I ended up in Australia. We got, um, me and my uh, now wife got together. She followed me back to Canada. We got married right. in Toronto. Yeah. And she loved Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, wanted to stay. But um, I guess I nagged her every day to move back. Uh, to Brisbane, so after and three, at that time or not? Yes, yeah. So by that, when we moved back, she got work straight away because yeah. nurses were in high demand. Yeah, um, and I got a um, a job basically in what I studied, mm-hmm. which was um, you know labor relations, mm-hmm. labor law, and um, and so I worked for that two and a half years, three years in the. Um, in the labor relations board okay. back in Canada, and yeah. with the basically it's a kind of a in, a in a regulatory area. But I I moved around a bit, like I did prosecutions, occupational health and safety prosecutions, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, I did um, employment law cases, mm-hmm. and usually on the side of that, um, you know, jobs that I felt had a, a social justice component. Yeah, and um, but obviously legally related. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you've pretty much had a social justice orientation through most of your career. You know, is that something that was instilled in you by your parents when you were young, or where do you think that that um, motivation has come from? Yeah, I think it's probably a combination of influences. Mm-hmm. I think, no doubt, my parents' situation and our situation growing up, mm-hmm. you know, kind of had an unusual uh, last name in a, in a town full of Morrisons and right. um, Smiths and Joneses. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, yeah, you do tend to probably um, struggle a bit harder, maybe study a bit harder, yeah. and and you know look out for others in, mm-hmm. that are disadvantaged. Maybe mm-hmm. um, partly also the the church influence, um, and certainly going to Africa, um, doing that volunteer work over mm-hmm. there mm-hmm. had had an impact as well. Mm-hmm. So I think there were a combination of. Um, Influences that uh, so I've always kind of sought roles that could could have um, rather than just selling widgets, yeah. having some other purpose. Sure. Yeah. Okay. And so eventually you uh, were allowed to return to Australia. Yes. Uh huh. Absolutely. Okay. And so what happened from there? So um, we had one child in, in who was born in Canada, and then mm-hmm. the second born uh, here in Australia. 
Um, so we, um, uh, <clears throat> I didn't have a job lined up or anything like that. Yeah. But um, I, uh, I applied um, to study um, a master's mm -hmm. uh, in business, mm -hmm. which um, I got into, and then I got a job fairly straight away. Right. And um, whilst you were doing your masters, or yeah, right, yeah. So okay. the masters was part time. The work yeah. was full time. Okay, and the family was pretty full time too. So mm -hmm. it's that whole juggling thing. Mm -hmm. And um, so I, um, uh, we um, kind of were living in New Farm at the time, but right. we uh, had some issues with with the house and the council resuming mm -hmm. some of the land. So we looked around for another place to live, and uh, we eventually settled on Sanford, okay. where we've been ever since. Right. So, yeah, I love the area. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I picked up a job with the Queensland government mm -hmm. and moved into workplace health and safety, stayed mm -hmm. there for a number of years. But it was such a big organization, did a number of things throughout, throughout the period. Mm -hmm. And the motivation to do a business degree or a master's in business whilst working in that space of workplace relations, et cetera, where, where was your thinking in terms of, you know, the applicability of those qualifications and perhaps where you were aspiring to take your career into the future? Hmm. Well, I did my thesis on enterprise bargaining. Okay. Because uh, enterprise bargaining was something that was very common in, in Ontario mm -hmm. and in Canada, mm -hmm. but <clears throat> had really just been introduced into Australia when I arrived mm -hmm. because before that it was the whole central wage fixing mm -hmm. environment. So I was interested in seeing, um, examining what the opportunities for um, more enterprise-based workplace relations were, mm -hmm. whether workers felt they would be better off or worse off under that, under that type of system. Yeah. And um, really seeing in terms of looking forward um, how that you know, workplace flexibility could be used to grow businesses, um, make people more engaged with the business, and the business more productive. Mm -hmm. So um, it was, uh, yeah, it was interesting uh, uh, research, and I think that you know I kind of used built on that mm -hmm. over time as I've gone through my various roles. Mm -hmm. Okay. And remained in Queensland since then, uh, but uh, I know that uh, at one point you were working for Work Cover Authority in New South Wales. Yeah, so I had been the um, general manager of Workplace Health and Safety Queensland for mm -hmm. five years, and um, yeah, basically I was headhunted to mm -hmm. um, apply for this, the same role, but in New South Wales. Right. And I thought, although it was the same thing, at least it was a, a new environment, bigger environment. Yeah. And it was also part of the Work Cover Authority down there, mm -hmm. whereas in Queensland, Work Cover and Workplace Health and Safety were always separate. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I took a punt and, 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 and took the role, and it was not long after I started that the CEO suddenly left, and she got a, a, an executive role in a, in a, in a big company, and uh -huh. where she's still there and doing right. very well. And so, you know, to my surprise, I'd only, I had only been there for six months, mm -hmm. but she suggested to the minister that I act as the CEO mm -hmm. while they were recruiting another person. Uh -huh. So, um, yeah, so that was a, a challenge, quite a large organization, mm -hmm. you know, um, over a thousand employees and a lot of money under investment mm -hmm. in terms of the <clears throat> workers' comp side of things. So, um, um, Anyway, I did that, and, and 
you know, once the CEO was recruited, mm-hmm. um, he immediately said, uh, well, you're not going back to workplace health and safety. We, can, we need you in work cover, like right. in the insurance side. So uh-huh. that provided the kind of variety I was interested in mm-hmm. and provided the opportunity. Mm-hmm. And I guess, again, I was headhunted back into Queensland by, somebody, by, by a company that was looking for somebody with an insurance yeah. orientation, mm-hmm. skill set in a regulated environment. So that's when I got recruited into TUH, mm-hmm. private health insurance. Right. And so um, uh, given that your career to that point, other than acting as a CEO for a short period, an uh, interim CEO you know, was very much in more operational leadership roles. When you were headhunted, you know, come and join TUH as CEO, and you, you, know, you looked inside yourself, how did you feel about stepping into a CEO role? Were there elements of your um, competency that you thought, boy, I'm going to have to really, uh, you know, upskill in these areas? Mm. I I think one of the advantages of some of the roles I had previously, for instance, general manager of Workplace Health and Safety Queensland, where Mm -hmm. you're in charge of, you know, the inspectorate and um, quite a regional focus, quite a large organization, it really is a standalone business unit. Mm -hmm. And although it was in a bigger department, it was in an area that was quite specialized. Yeah. So really, you're kind of left to your own devices somewhat. Mm-hmm. Um, so I felt I, that, that in terms of that leadership and you know, developing a vision and you know, strategic objectives, I felt fairly comfortable. The thing that I thought would be a little bit daunting is that there was nowhere else to go. Um, in other words, in it, first of all, it's private sector versus mm-hmm. government. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in one respect, I thought, well, there's some benefits to that, yeah. in that you know you tend to be your own boss a yeah. little more. Um, on the other hand, I, had, I didn't have a lot of experience with the governance mm-hmm. arrangements working mm-hmm. with a board. Uh, we did have a board in workplace health and safety, mm-hmm. but it was quite different sure. than a skills-based board that we yeah. find in industry. So. I think that the, the thing that I thought that I had to, um, um, you know, develop skills in was uh, the, the governance aspect. So mm-hmm. I immediately did the AICD director's course. Right. Um, so I did that over 10 years ago and, you know, I've really um, built on those skills, mm-hmm. taken further study the whole time. Yeah. No, fellow of the AICD. That's so right. um, it's really, um, it's, been a, it's been a great journey that way. Mm-hmm. And obviously, I'm on a number of other boards, and I chair two of them. So mm-hmm. I, I guess I'm always learning in that mm-hmm. in that level. But back then, it was something brand new. Mm. So I did feel that that would be uh, quite challenging. The role itself had quite a few challenges. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm interested in that. So you you come into this role uh, as CEO. In, I mean, it was a while ago now. But you know, what was the original mandate? What were they wanting you to achieve? Hmm. The organization had been through a, um, a bit of strife, mm-hmm. to put it bluntly. Um, it had just come out of government administration. Mm-hmm. So the, um, there were, and, and the issues were governance issues, not financial. So there was a real need, and the mandate was to set the organization back on track. Right. It had, I had a report, an HR report from an HR consultancy pointing mm-hmm. out all sorts of issues in terms of staff mm-hmm. and staff engagement. Um, we had um, a lot of issues with respect to the culture of the 
organization um, and a, um, a lot of issues with respect to some of the skill sets. Mm. So there was a real need to stabilize the organization after a very turbulent period that lasted mm -hmm. about two years. Um, we had a new board. Um, I brought in a new executive team. So I was really building the organization from mm -hmm. the ground up. Um, and it was extremely challenging in those first few years. Um, luckily, I had a very supportive uh, board and a very experienced chairman. Mm -hmm. And were you uh, cognizant of you know, all of those issues prior to being uh, appointed? Or was there a, uh, a bit of a, oh my God, what have I done moment when you got into there and started <laughs> to really see what was happening? No, no, it was a very transparent process, okay. and I had all the reports were laid out right. in front of me, the background explained, mm -hmm. and I thought, uh, there's only one way to go with this organization. <laughs> I thought, unless I completely stuff it up, it's only going to get better. Right. And it did get better, yeah. appreciably better, and the organization mm -hmm. is in a very uh, solid position mm -hmm. today. So how, how long was it from appointment to the point where you went, Okay, I think we're we're back on track now. Was that a twelve month process or a many year process? No, I think it lasted pretty much until the time that the chair stepped down. Okay, he was comfortable, so um, he was there for five years post your appointment. Yes, right, okay. or at my appointment. Project. Oh, okay, so he right. hired me almost after as soon as he got hired. Sure. That was okay. his first job, get right. a CEO. Uh -huh. So within a few months yeah. of his appointment, I was appointed. And so we really worked together. Mm -hmm. And I suppose once he felt comfortable stepping down, because it was a very busy role for a, an incoming chair mm -hmm. to lead the organization through the morass of issues yeah. that they had to get through, mm -hmm. um, uh, I kind of felt, well, that you know, says something. I was very sorry to see him go, mm -hmm. but I was also pretty assured that you know, he obviously felt that the organization was at a spot that it could stand mm -hmm. on its own two legs. And um, and move forward in a in a much stronger with a much stronger foundation. Mm -hmm. And when you think about that five year period, no doubt there were many many things that you uh, initiated and, and got done. But you know what were a couple of the uh, the particular um, uh, initiatives that had the the greatest reach and effect in terms of getting the business back on track? In your opinion. Well, there's probably two, and one was internal and one was external. Okay. So I might treat them like that. In terms of internal, there was a real culture change program required, mm -hmm. and we mapped out a three-year program. Mm -hmm. So it was an extensive program um, to really bring the organization into the 20th century, or the 21st century, yeah. and to um, make sure people were comfortable with change, responsive to the market. There was a whole digital piece that had to happen. Um, so there was a whole process about getting the organization really member-focused mm -hmm. and delivering outcomes and being productive and fully engaged. Mm -hmm. So that was a, a challenging process, as I said, a long process, but in the end, very successful. So we do the um, Aon Hewitt engagement survey, and we during that time, we, we've moved from the um, you know, mid-quartile to the, the top quartile of engagement. Yeah. So we're definitely on, on a good trajectory there. In terms of external, we were a very conservative uh, health fund. Uh, we basically only had two products. It was just like you could have the car whatever color you want as long as right. it's black. Yeah. And 
there was clearly a need to adapt to a changing demographic. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had a, a, an older membership mm-hmm. than the industry average. Um, and really, in insurance, you need to spread the risks. And one way to do that is to bring young people into the, mm-hmm. into the fund. So we also, as well as the internal program, we had an externally focused program that looked at what do um, people want? Mm-hmm. What do our members want? What do people that aren't members yet, what will they come over for? So that was all about building the uh, foundation so that we could provide the number of products for a life cycle of a member, mm-hmm. not just when they were quite an established teacher and could afford our products, which were mm-hmm. top end, good value, but expensive. Yeah. And hard pressed for a young new teacher probably to take that step as private health insurance mm-hmm. became more expensive. And given that you uh, hadn't worked in the private sector, it was a, it was essentially a new industry, a new role being CEO. It, you know, it was a commercially orientated role more so than previous ones. Um, you know, lots of different. Uh, uh, attributes to get your head around. You know, where were you drawing your inspiration from, and and you know, how were you uh, identifying these opportunities? Um, given that it wasn't your core skill base, how did you even you know come to uh, understand that these were the specific tasks that needed to be tackled? Mm-hmm. I got enormous support from the board mm-hmm. and the industry generally. Okay. So when I joined. Almost, well, all private health insurers were not-for-profit. Right. And they all cooperated mm-hmm. a lot more than they do today. Yeah. A much more competitive environment now. And especially in one of the group industry groups we were in, which is called HERMA, they're all restricted. they were all restricted funds at the time. Mm-hmm. And they all had different restriction rules. Okay. So they actually didn't compete with each other. So restricted in So, for instance, to- police. Right. Army. Okay, right. Navy. Yeah. Right? So people that join the Navy fund wouldn't join teachers fund. Sure. Because they don't cross over. Mm-hmm. So there, there was a group of 14 to 16 funds at the time, and we shared a lot of information. So I got all, a lot of support from within the industry mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and a lot of support from my board. And the third, the third part of the stool, if you will, third leg of the stool, was I joined every type of professional association I could, for instance, in Brisbane to build up my networks. Mm-hmm. So through the AICD, you know, the Governance Institute, the uh, CEO Institute. Um, so building that network and sharing mm-hmm. issues with peers, mm-hmm. I found extremely helpful, and especially, you know, that view from other industries, mm-hmm. not having that narrow perspective, I found that um, a very useful exercise too. Right. Okay. So five years into the role, the business is operating well enough that the chair says, okay, I feel that I can uh, uh, step down. Uh, for a lot of CEOs, they would go, okay, what's the next challenge? But you've uh, mm. stayed with the business for significantly longer than that. So how do you, or how did you reinvent your role and reinvent your sort of priorities to keep you engaged and motivated? Yeah, look, I think the first five years was really setting the foundation. Yeah. You know, the governance issues particularly. Mm-hmm. Um, we developed a new constitution, all the new procedures. Uh, and, and, you know, the government's changing the legislation all the time. So there was a whole compliance um, piece that had to be absolutely spot on. Yeah. Um, I think our board was hyper 
uh, vigilant okay. because we had that interaction with the previous regulator. Right. Um, and so that was really um, getting all that cemented in place, clear strategy, um, clear values, cl- engagement by staff. I think the next five years was really the period of growth. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we've got a solid foundation. Yeah. Where do we take it? Mm-hmm. So we expanded our services in the, in the health hub. Um, we've expanded our project product range. Mm-hmm. We started growing um, significantly. Um, for instance, when I started, we had about 19,000 members, and now we have 37,000. Mm-hmm. We had about 25 million under investment. Now we have three times that. Mm-hmm. So we've had some, you know, our revenue has more than doubled, you know, from 70 to 150 million. So there's clearly in that, in this period, the last five, and most of that has grown in the last five years. Mm. So it's probably been even more accelerated than the numbers indicate because those are 10-year figures. Mm-hmm. I, I put those together because I just recently completed my 10th financial right. year. So okay. I thought I'd reflect on where we had come sure. from to where we've ended up. So... Um, um, and through all that change, to still retain the solid uh, member focus, mm-hmm. um, I think has been um, particularly rewarding, mm-hmm. but also challenging because the environment is very competitive out there, and we have to be as competitive, more competitive, because the big brands have big names, big advertising budgets, and we have to be a step ahead of them. Yeah, you know so. Um, we um, are undergoing another, I guess, cultural change. Um, now it's a lot easier because people are very change resistant. And, you know, when I'm talking about our staff, yes, they're very engaged and they see the need. Mm-hmm. Okay, we've, we've got the member focus, but now we need that commercial focus. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no good offering the best products at the cheapest prices if you go broke. Mm-hmm. Right? And our board has a strong focus now on sustainability. You know, we've been around almost 45 years. We want to be around another 45 years. Yeah. And um, so that's a key uh, focus uh, for us going forward. Right. And you mentioned that uh, within the industry association, there were 14 or 16 non-compete like-minded funds that were very supportive of each other. But your own situation has changed and that you can now open up to a broader customer base I'm imagining that uh, they could as well how has that affected that uh, communication within the uh, uh, cooperation within mm-hmm. the industry yeah. it's it's interesting because a lot some of those uh, restricted funds have gone open right you know and, and a few like us have expanded their restriction mm-hmm. so there is definitely overlaps starting to happen mm-hmm. but the collegiality amongst the small funds is still quite strong. Okay. It's almost like we're united by a common enemy. Right. <laughs> which is the big for-profit insurers. So um, there still is, is good uh, sharing of uh, information. We obviously don't share anything related to pricing mm. or anything like mm. that. Um, we're all very aware of ACCC issues across the industry. But the, um, there still is, 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 is a strong support. Um, in fact, um, 15 of the um, small funds have come together to uh, start a, an aggregator service. Okay. 
you know, to um, offer an alternative to the iSelects. Right. Hopefully you'll have better TV commercials. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we did, they have done some TV advertising, but geez, right. it's expensive. Yeah. And um, the, uh, we still find that direct marketing in our niche yeah. is, gives, delivers us the best value. Right. So, and what about looking internationally at world's best practice? Uh, uh, do you have much attention to what's going on in other countries around the world? Yes, we're we're a, a, um, a member of an international association mm-hmm. of, of health funds, and um, they organize an executive development program where they will spend a week in different parts, two weeks in different times of the year. One week in the USA, Canada, um, Australia, mm-hmm. and then one week kind of in Europe, UK, um, and they will look at best practice in yep. those in those right. companies because we really are sharing mm. the same issues. No matter how we're structured or what country we operate in or what regulations we have to follow, mm-hmm. we have an aging population, we have a growing incidence of chronic disease, mm. and we have increasing um, health provider costs. Right. Mm-hmm. Great. The technology is great, but it all costs yeah. money. So all these companies are finding different ways to address those issues and still engage with their members. So those overseas experiences are, although none of them are com- just completely transferable, mm-hmm. all of them provide insight mm-hmm. into how to do things better in Australia. Okay. And so five years of foundation, five years of growth, you know, you're still in the role, you've, yeah. you've had your 10-year anniversary, so what's the next five years? <laughs> yeah, look, I think um, the industry is, and the environment for private health insurance is, I think, on the verge of a, of a major shift. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the government clearly needs private health to make public health care sustainable itself. Yeah. More than half the operations in Australia are done in the private sector. Mm-hmm. Um, the benefits paid are significant, you know, in the billions. And the government does make an investment with a private health insurance rebate, but it's always being challenged. And so I guess as an industry, we have to develop the value in our products and to the consumer that makes the consumer um, feel empowered to make choices about their healthcare, choosing the best doctor, the best um, hospital provider at, at, at a gap that they can live with or at no gap, even better. And so I think the consumer empowerment agenda mm-hmm. has not happened in healthcare. Mm-hmm. And uh, you cannot rate hotels and pick, uh, uh, like you can rate hotels or you can... Um, um, go with alternatives in terms of sharing, ride sharing, or yeah. all those interesting things you can do in all those other industries, um, whether it's real estate, travel, accommodation, you cannot do in private health or public health. Right. Health generally is very opaque. Mm-hmm. So it's very hard to see which surgeons do the most procedures. Mm-hmm. Who offers the best value? Who has the who has the lowest infection rates? So privacy provisions, government regulation, um, resistance by providers, all um, 
contribute to make that consumer empowerment mm. really challenging. Mm -hmm. So there are initiatives afoot, and the industry is constantly looking at ways to improve that. So in your mind, a drive towards greater transparency would be a positive uh, step forward? Absolutely. Right. It would give the consumer more information. Mm -hmm. Right now, there's information asymmetry. Yeah. The providers have all the information, consumers have none. Right. As the middle person, insurers try to provide consumers with that information so mm -hmm. they can make the best choice for them. And uh, right now, that's very difficult to do. Mm. But I think that's the next wave. Okay. You know, the, the minister has a number of reviews going on in, in the private in, and in the, in the healthcare sector generally, mm. but a number of them impact directly on private health insurance. Mm. And, um, you know, I think governments need better value for their healthcare dollar. Mm -hmm. You know, it's climbing. It's 10% GDP now. Right. But it is climbing, and mm. it's forecast to be at 13% GDP by, you know, in the next 10 years mm. and accelerating ever faster. So there could be a time, and some countries are forecasting, that the entire government budget could be spent on health care. Wow. So, you know, if we want to deliver education and security and roads and infrastructure, we need to fix health. Right and spending on health and the acceleration of costs in that area. Mm, that's fascinating. Uh, I've never heard, you know, uh, that uh, comment made before. I had no sort of awareness. I imagine most people listening would be the same. That's quite a, a scary consideration, isn't it? Mm, well, I'm sure it keeps a number of health ministers around the world awake at night. Yeah. Uh, because it is, it, and there are so many entrenched interests mm. Um, and investments made, mm. and um, and at the same time, community expectations are growing. Mm. So, what's the solution? Um, I think transparency is part of the solution. Yeah. I think competition is another part. Mm -hmm. um, that we see that even in the private sector, comp competition be between providers mm. does lead to lower costs and better service. And this isn't something you know that I've made up. It's a product result of a Productivity Commission report, right? And uh, which, which was done in the last mm -hmm. couple of years. Okay. So I think um, things like transparency, competition, but there's got to be leadership too, mm. and particularly political leadership and a will to improve the value of healthcare. Yeah, and uh, but I imagine underpinning all that is the fact that. You know, the population is aging. There's not much we can do about that. But certainly the population is getting fatter and sicker. And, uh, um, uh, you know, there's, a, a, there's not a lot you can do if, uh, you know, you've got that situation happening at a global sort of scale to try and uh, rectify that unless there's massive change in the way that people perceive their own health. And one of the... And, and, and on that point, one of the things that the private health insurance industry is advocating for is the ability to um, be involved in primary care. Yeah. Not so much, and that's basically the GP level. Okay. Because the first, the private, uh, the insurer mm. is aware that somebody has diabetes or somebody has um, chronic renal failure is they get a claim in the in the mail from the, from the hospital. So yeah. we've just had your member in here for the mm. last two weeks, mm. can you please pay the bill? Whereas if we could engage with GPs and know from an earlier, the first time a person 
um, presents at a general practitioner with a complaint, we can then work with our members mm. to improve the, their health at an earlier stage and maybe prevent mm. um, some aspects mm. of the, um, of the uh, chronic uh, health condition later on, either prevent it or at least um, improve the um, um, uh, you know, returning uh, to hospital, maybe reducing the length of stay in the hospital, or um, readmission rates, reducing readmission rates. Mm. I mean, we have one member of ours that went to a hospital 40 times last year. Mm. I mean, some of them are just on a, um, you know, like a revolving door type thing, mm. in and out, in and out. And, you know, I think as, it, as insurers, especially as, as member-focused, you know, companies, we want to, our members to improve their, their life. Of course. And uh, look, clearly it'll reduce our costs. Yeah. But it's reducing the cost for everybody in the health fund. Yeah. And that's the sustainability piece. Yeah. I mean, if you look at tobacco, and uh, you know, there's been big sticks out in terms of uh, we're going to increase the cost, you know, exponentially. We're going to restrict your ability to smoke where you want, when you want. Uh, I suppose uh, you know the next step is you go to GP, you stand on a scale, and if you're you know obese and um, in order to drive people's um, behaviour change, then uh, you'll pay a premium for the ac- access to health services. Although mm. I imagine that that's not a very politically uh, <laughs> easy uh, conversation to have. Well, yeah, at the time, at, at the current time anyway, it's illegal. Right. So we have a community rating system in Australia where everybody pays the same yeah. for the same product mm-hmm. no matter how young or old they are and no matter how sick or healthy they are. Mm-hmm. And the industry supports it and mm-hmm. supports it strongly because it makes health insurance affordable. Yeah. Um, in other jurisdictions where it's risk-rated, mm-hmm. old people cannot afford private health insurance mm-hmm. and people that have any type of condition mm. also would find it very difficult. Mm. So we support the community rating yeah. principle. However, we'd like to be able to intervene earlier in the cycle mm-hmm. um, to try and improve our members' mm. health. And it's just very difficult when the only, well, most of the data you're using mm-hmm. is based on when they already have been sick and sure. they've put in a yeah. claim, etc. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, there are things, and I think modern technology too, like the development of apps. I mean, behavior change is difficult. Mm-hmm. But if you can develop clever and fun ways of helping people make change. Absolutely. It, it has been shown to work. So things like 10,000 steps, yeah. and those, those things that encourage people just mm-hmm. to make small changes. I've read a book recently called The Inevitable and uh, talking about new technology in terms of nanotechnology that you wear that talk, you know can measure your body functions in real time and you know say you're dehydrated you need to drink more water or you know you've had your calorie intake of t- you know for the day or whatever it might be so i think it's going to be fascinating to see uh you know where we are in even 10 years let alone 50 years from now um so just coming back to your own situation so rob you know uh what, what about in terms of your career, uh, 10 years in this role? You know, what are the things you're excited about achieving, you know, before you end up, uh, you know, retiring at whatever point that might be in the future? Yeah, look, I mean, I think um, leadership is a fascinating um, area. Um, I've always been passionate about leadership and good leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, I, the, the model I use 
is um, something developed many years ago by uh, Meg Wheatley, okay. who's a, an American author. And um, basically, it, it's a very simple concept, which is why I like it, um, which revolves around the green line. Mm -hmm. And there are aspects of leadership that are above the green line mm -hmm. and those below. And those above the green line are things that every leader has to do. Mm -hmm. Strategy, budgeting, forecasting. Um, but they're all um, fairly predictable. Mm -hmm. um, there are models to do it. Mm -hmm. And people can learn how to do those things quite well. The, um, I guess below the green line are more about the relationships, um, engagement with stakeholders, the culture, things that are more difficult to measure, although when she was writing, they didn't have some of the culture measurement instruments we probably have today, because that's becoming a bit more common. But there are still things that are much harder to define, much harder to grab hold of, but are equally, and some, some would argue, more vital mm -hmm. to make sure you have an effective running organization. So what would, of those, what is the most critical one or ones? Well, I think, I think the engagement okay. with staff. Mm -hmm. I think the, the, the culture. Mm -hmm. um, if you can build a, the type of culture you need um, and the type of engagement, then I think you're going to have happy customers mm -hmm. and you're going to have a growing business. So that looking for opportunities um, to do that in challenging environments, mm -hmm. I think would be you know, appealing. Okay. Um, it's... Um, I guess, you know, the environment I'm in is actually quite challenging mm -hmm. and new challenges are, are, are there and, um, um, and, and it's a, it's a, the playing field is always changing. There's a mm -hmm. lot happening in health, in the health sector. But I think, you know, there are other areas that are probably equally challenging. Yeah. So I, as long as, as there's that, that challenge and that leadership challenge particularly, mm -hmm is what drives me. Mm. Do you see yourself moving more towards a portfolio career in the future or you like you know, to be in the role of CEO and, and, and drive the agenda? Uh, for now, but I think that that will change. Right. Yeah, and I think you know, it's, it's changing mm -hmm. a lot as we speak. Yeah. And it's becoming more common. I mean, I have two daughters uh, in their mid-twenties and mm -hmm. um, to them, the concept of a career or a job is is is, is challenging. Yeah. They talk about portfolios, right? So I think, in a sense, we're just catching up. Yeah, <laughs> and um, to them, and and I think that that is appealing. With I've always enjoyed the diversity. Mm -hmm. I guess in this um, where I'm at now, one of the advantages I get a bit of both. Sure, I get the diversity and I get the challenge, the mm -hmm. leadership challenge. But um, I think that that uh, full time. You know, twenty four seven commitment. I think that there will be a time to let, yeah. to say goodbye to that. Sure. And um, yeah, and I'm looking forward to it. And do you think at any point you'll return to live in Canada or Australia's home? Ah, uh, no, Australia's home. I've right. been here over twenty five years, yeah. and um, you know, I got strong roots here. So no, that's not that's not going to change anytime soon. Uh -huh. <laughs> and we've uh, we've talked a lot about business and your professional life. Uh, what about in terms of your personal life? What are the things that you enjoy doing when you're not working? Well, hmm. uh, my, my wife and I have a place up at Coolum. Oh, yeah. So we're up there most weekends, especially right. in, at this time of year when it's a bit warmer. And um, But we also are quite active. Mm. So we've, we met on the uh, trekking. Right. And so we've done the Inca Trail, the Tour de Mont Blanc, where 
doing a five-day bike trip in New Zealand okay. uh, mid-next year. So, yeah, we like to stay active, and we have a group of friends that yeah. we, uh, a lot of them from Sanford, mm-hmm. uh, that we um, we undertake some of these adventures. So, But, um, yeah, I guess our... Our, one of our biggest passions is is traveling, mm-hmm. and um, look, I've got a, a daughter working in Sydney and another studying in Sweden at the moment. Right. So they've um, and the one in Sydney has just came came back from a stint in New York City for okay. a few years. Uh-huh. So they, I think that uh, we've passed on the travel gene, yeah, uh, to them as well. Fantastic. So uh, before we wrap it up, uh, is there anything else you'd like to say, or anything I haven't asked that uh, you were hoping to talk briefly about? Uh, just that, you know, the whole concept of um, aligning, you know, personal values with organizational values mm-hmm. and and um, those cultural issues, I think mm-hmm. is so important. I mean, certainly being at TUH is the longest I've had any role. And one of the reasons is because that alignment is there. Yeah. So if I were to change, you know... Um, organizations or whatever I think that alignment again mm-hmm. would be the biggest priority and I think it's the best um, advice I actually had that advice when I was going to university you know study whatever you want as long as you love it right and you have a passion for it yeah um, because otherwise you could be miserable on so many levels mm. if you're just doing things because you think it's you should be doing it mm-hmm. so um, look, I took that approach I started out studying philosophy you know, my dad being an engineer would kind of wonder about that at right. times. But, you know, it's led me to other things. So. I suppose not only being an engineer, but also uh, coming to Canada, you know, essentially, uh, and having to start life from scratch, the security of stable career and income and, you know, a lot of those drivers of our parents' generation, you know, would have been amplified in your parents, I imagine. So uh, to... Um, leap out of the nest and go and travel for years and years without a job and and so I must have been pretty brave at the time I imagine your parents probably had some interesting chats with you about that well interestingly I think it's probably what my dad would have liked to have done right yeah so I think he was um although my mother was always dismayed that I was gone Mm -hmm. for so long I think um my dad was supportive right they were both supportive and and so I was very lucky in that. I never would have done it yeah. if, if it wasn't for that right. because we were a very close family. Great. Well, look, uh, Rob, I uh, really appreciate you taking the time. If uh, we don't talk beforehand, have a Merry Christmas and uh, have a fantastic afternoon. Merry Christmas to you too, Richard. Thank you very much. Well, Rob, uh, welcome back to the Arate podcast. Gosh, it's been, uh, I think, probably three or four years since uh, you last came on. But today it's awesome to, uh, to reconnect to talk particularly about your role as the chair of HAMS. So uh, perhaps, Rob, just to you know, get the conversation flowing, tell us a little bit about HAMS and how long you've been involved and, and what the organisation does, et cetera. Thanks, Richard, and it's great to be back. HAMS is an information technology company. It provides a software, a software solution that enables private health insurance companies to operate and to comply with all their regulatory requirements. So that includes managing members, policies, um, products, collecting premiums, paying benefits, and communicating with members. Um, The solution uh, started over 30 years ago um, when HAMS was officially uh, formed as a company. And ever since then, it's been 
um, providing the um, software solution required for a group of private health funds to operate, which at the current time is about 25 health funds. Um, the structure is that that's, it's a, a mutual company owned by um, uh, 17 health funds that are all in themselves mutuals. And so there's very much a, a community ethos behind the company. There's sharing of information, there's uh, brainstorming of um, best practice solutions, and it's, a, uh, it's proved to be a very successful formula in competing in allowing small health funds to compete um, with much larger uh, private health funds. And so 30 years ago when it uh, <clears throat> commenced, was it the case that uh, some private health funds got together and said, look, the solutions available to us don't really meet our needs. Let's all cooperate together to create something. Or is that largely how it came to be? Or was it a different story to that? Um, it was actually started, uh, the very bones of it was actually started 10 years earlier um, uh, by National Mutual. So they developed something that certainly was used by a number of, of funds, but it didn't really meet their needs, as you say. So in 1991, the users of that product negotiated to buy it. Right. And so they bought it and um, adapted it to their uh, needs and specifications. And um, ably led by uh, a chair um, of the, uh, of, who was the CEO of one of the founding health funds uh, Michael Bassingthwaite, who was the chair for 25 years. So he steered it through its foundation and, and a lot of its uh, maturity. Um, I joined the board in 2007 and have been the chair uh, for the past six years. So we're getting to a stage now where that, um, you know, the, the foundation stages and I guess the adolescent stages of the product is... Um, has passed, and now we're really looking to take it to the next level. And from what I understand from our prior conversations, Rob, uh, you know, the big funds have largely developed their own software specific to their needs, uh, whereas this is a case of um, it's developed uh, a platform which uh, the members uh, uh, who are either the owning members of HAMS, or they may not be one of those 17, but they also have the ability to access and utilize the software. Is that correct? Uh, that's correct. There are 34 health funds in Australia and 25 of them use uh, HAMS. Right. So, um, uh, and HAMS runs two, two software platforms. So there's a small number that use one platform, but the bulk use um, the basic, uh, the uh, HAMS platform. So, those other uh, companies that, that don't use HAMS typically have developed their own. Mm -hmm. uh, they very expensive uh, to develop. Some of them have partnered with much larger IT providers. So a group, so the biggest ones like Medibank and Bupa, they completely develop their own or standalone. Others have um, developed their solutions in partnership with um, um, much larger providers. But the HAMS product is bespoke to the needs of its 
of, of the kind of small to medium-sized health funds out there that are um, mainly mutuals and providing that, uh, wanting to provide that um, additional quality of service to their members, individualized service. Mm-hmm. So, so it's, uh, it, it, but it's a challenging environment as people that are familiar with information technology would know. Um, it's more difficult to get the skills you need to develop a program. The technology is always changing. It always needs updating and um, regulatory requirements in our industry are changing every year without right. exception. So there's a constant need to develop, but there's also a, a need to renew. So one of the challenge of, challenges of, um, of running the companies, particularly at this stage, is to you know, build, if I can use an analogy, um, build a new car while you're while you are still driving it. <laughs> and and from what I understand, that is actually happening. You've you've just uh, uh, agreed as the members to make a substantive investment in, you know, as you say, building this new car. Correct. Uh, that's correct. So uh, the Hams members have um, agreed to a four-year transformation program. We're about to launch into the first year. Um, it will be developing what we're calling a target state of the, of, the, of the platform. And so one of the key roles of the CEO to be gaining, to be gaining an understanding very quickly of the requirements of that target state and then starting to deliver on, on the uh, transformation program. So it's, uh, there are certain timelines that have already been agreed to and deliverables where we've um, used an external party to uh, validate and, and verify all the steps we plan to take in order to reach that target state. And so delivery um, on budget and on time will be a key focus of the role. Right. And uh, once this target state has been achieved uh, within this four-year period, what, what are the things that you're excited about for the future of HAMS? Well, I think the exciting things, the exciting thing, and the most exciting thing will be that HAMS will then be at a maturity where it is an agile product, um, one based on the latest technology, one that is modular so that it can be developed quickly, also be able to apply to different commercial environments. Um, HAMS even currently gets um, requested from other uh, companies in other industries to use some of the features of the product, but currently it's very difficult to do that because mm-hmm. it's a prolific system. Mm-hmm. So this will really break it down so that it, it'll be able to be segmented, uh, commoditized, marketed. So not only will that benefit the current users, because they will have a more agile, um, responsive um, product to use themselves, but it will also enable the company to source alternative revenue streams to support the ongoing development of the product. Fantastic. And just in terms of the makeup of the board, so obviously you as chair, uh, you're also the CEO of TUH. Um, The other members of the board there are some members of the board who are CEOs of other health funds, and then you have uh, some independent directors as well. Is that correct? That's correct. So we have seven directors. 
Five of them are what we call corporate representative directors. So they're um, currently CEOs of, of the um, member funds. And two independent directors have been uh, appointed to basically um, fill out the skill set across the board, providing more information technology, financial acumen and business um, skills that we feel that hands need. So it's a relatively recent phenomenon. So the company has been around for over 30 years, but we appointed our first independent director three years ago and our second independent director just last year. So it is an evolving um, governance uh, arrangement under the, um, under the hands constitution. And um, you know we could uh, well see that how that um, develops in the future, because the needs of the company will change, and um, so the governance requirements may well change. But at this stage, we're quite uh, comfortable where where we're um, positioned as a, as a company. We have a strong governance structure, not only um, around the company itself, but around this transformation program. Mm -hmm. um, governance arrangements in place to ensure that the program is uh, delivered on time, on budget, and that it's adding the value that the customers expect. And do you imagine that in four years' time, once uh, this uh, major project's completed, you'll still be sitting in the, uh, the role of chair? God, I hope not. <laughs> um, <laughs> I only say that not because it won't be exciting, but exciting. But um, I think you know, after that'll be ten years. I think that's uh, long enough these days to to be a chair of a company. Um, but what I do, what I do hope is that the um, the value of the company will have increased significantly. The value to the members um, will be seen and utilized within our industry but also some of the features accessible from um, other industries or other providers that may be seeking um, those bespoke uh, software solutions I was, I was talking about. The other thing I think that you've got to um, take into account that after four years, it's not like the world is gonna stop. So there are, there's gonna be ongoing information technology developments over the next four years, probably faster than and is currently occurring, and there will be a need to continuously um, develop HAMS, well, first of all, maintain it, but then also develop it to meet the needs of the future. Yeah, look, I, I think you're absolutely right, because a lot of that change being internally driven, but in the broader, you know, IT environment, and particularly, you know, with the, uh, you know, the moves towards augmented reality and virtual reality and all of these kinds of new applications, that will have a bearing on, on what happens to hams as well, won't it? Because you'll need to uh, adapt to changing market conditions in Africa. Absolutely. And, and currently we are doing it. A lot of the members, for instance, use robotic process automation um, and use uh, some of the uh, features that um, you know, artificial intelligence provides. But... I would say it's at a basic level, mm -hmm. you know, introductory. 
And also the integration with the current hands product is not always easy to achieve. Mm-hmm. Whereas the whole purpose of, of the transformation is to um, end up with a target state where it is easy to integrate those other technologies and solutions into the core product because the core product, the core product is incredibly sound. It has been developed in a way that, and I think it's unique in Australia in this regard, that it has never um, run afoul or a breach of any regulatory requirement. HAMS is seen as a market leader in industry intelligence in terms of um, assisting, even assisting our regulators to be able to introduce new requirements in a way that, you know, systems can accommodate rather than just, you know, coming up with ideas that are, you know, very costly or even impossible to um, build into current Mm -hmm. software. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that that'll be, that'll be a key um, element as well. We um, are looking at um, providing that assurance to members that we will continue to assist them to meet all their regulatory requirements and obligations and those changing requirements um, on a very uh, um, contemporary basis. Well, Rob, uh, I appreciate you taking some time to give us an update on HAMS. uh, And uh, thanks for uh, your time today and have a fantastic afternoon. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Arate Podcast with Richard Treeks. For show notes and other resources, please visit aratepodcast.com. While you are there, you can subscribe for future episodes so you can continue your own journey towards realizing your full potential as a senior executive. And please be sure to share this and other episodes with your friends and colleagues. The Arate Podcast is brought to you by the Experts On Air Podcast Network.